God, we thank you for this testimony from Sharon of your goodness. And Lord, I know from various conversations that this room is full of people with stories about your grace and your goodness at work in their lives. And Lord, we long to hear even more of those stories. We know that you are a God who loves us and you are constantly and faithfully at work in our lives. And we give you praise for that. And Lord, I ask that as we finish up our series on the parables of Jesus this morning, that your Holy Spirit would come and minister to our hearts, um, that you would help us to understand the importance of the kingdom of God and having hearts that value what you value. And so, Lord, would you do that work and conform us even more this morning into the image of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Uh, We're going to be in Luke chapter 16, if you want to turn there with me in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you're always welcome to take one of ours from our little welcome table against the wall in the hallway there. Um, We are a church that values the Word of God when we get up or when I get up here to preach or when somebody else gets up here to preach. Our goal is not to give you uh, empty platitudes or our best thoughts about things in life, but to um, encourage you from the revealed Word of God. So we really want you to have a Bible. Uh, Like I mentioned in my prayer, this is our last Sunday looking at the parables of Jesus. Next week we're going to begin a short little series leading up to Christmas, just reflecting on who Jesus is. Um, But today we're going to read the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. So if you want to join me, we're going to be in Luke 16 and we're going to start in verse 19. It says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And the rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Well, this is a story that Jesus tells that definitely invokes, I think, some very vivid imagery It's one of the things that I love about the parables. 
Jesus didn't merely teach with academic lectures or theological discourses. He had this incredible ability to communicate through stories like this, explaining the kingdom of God in a way that really leaves an impression on us that I think sticks. And ultimately what we're going to find is that this parable is a teaching about the things that are close to the heart of God and the responsibility that we have in this life to seek after those kinds of things. So let's talk first about the rich man. Um, It's pretty clear he is a self-centered guy. He's living his best life now. He's enjoying his wealth and his comfort, and he's quite happy and satisfied in his circumstances. If you look back at your Bible just a little ways to verses 14 and 15 of this chapter, we actually find there the explanation, I think, for why Jesus tells this parable. It says in verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed Jesus. And Jesus said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So one of the purposes for Jesus telling this parable to this audience, the Pharisees in particular, is to rebuke them for their love of money. But we also find in this parable, I think, something that addresses a common misconception that was prevalent in the ancient world. Actually, I would say it's a misconception that is still lingering in the minds of people even in our modern world. Many people in the ancient world, and I would say even today as well, basically believe that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And they think that something is wrong with the world if bad things happen to good people. This is essentially the idea of karma, okay? Maybe it's not stated that way very explicitly often, but this is karma. And if you were to ask one of the people listening to Jesus um, in his day why a person was rich, most likely they would respond to that and say, well, because God has given his favor to that person. They are rich because God has chosen to bless them. Because God actually is more pleased with them than he is with other people. And obviously, if someone was rich because God favored them, then you could extrapolate from that where they would be in eternity, they would be in the presence of God because clearly he favors them in life. And we still have this kind of idea in the modern mind. Um, We've really... removed the religious language from the equation, I think. But many people, if you hear them talk about rich people, they will say something like, well, luck has really fallen upon them, right? The universe has smiled upon them. Fate has blessed them. But in the Christian worldview that we get from Jesus in his teaching, God's purposes in how he assigns material wealth to people are not something that we have access to. Why God gives some people comfortable lives with riches and wealth and why other people go through extreme suffering, the Bible doesn't say that that's knowledge that we should have. There's no direct correlation, actually, 
between the wealth that you might have in this life and God's love for you. No correlation at all. Sometimes it's a blessing to be poor, and sometimes it is a curse to be rich. But more than that, I would have you understand that material blessing in this life is simply irrelevant to the kingdom of God and the purposes of God. What matters in the eyes of God is not your social status or the wealth that you have or your achievements. What matters is whether we treasure the things that God himself treasures, whether we seek the kingdom of God first or we neglect it for other things that we think are more shiny. The things that matter in the eyes of God are things like joy and righteousness and peace and contentment and love and mercy and humility and praise to God and justice and concern for other people. These are the things that God treasures, not comfort or material blessings. And so this parable then is in part a great rebuke for those who have their faith and hope and trust, all of their love in money and riches and comfort and neglect the things that are actually important to God. So verse 25, look at it again if you have your Bible. This is not an absolute statement that the Bible is making about the end result for those who have poverty, as if the Bible is teaching that if you are poor, therefore, no matter what, automatically you will end up in heaven. And if you are wealthy, therefore, because you have good in this life, you will automatically have pain and suffering and torment in hell, as if Jesus is some kind of Marxist fool. But this verse is, in fact, a shocking rebuke of those who assume that if you have good in this life, it is automatically a symbol that you are acceptable in the eyes of God, that God loves you. That's not how this works. And truthfully, this is the view of the modern prosperity movement. If you're familiar with the prosperity gospel, it basically says that if you are right in the eyes of God, you can expect health and wealth and material blessings because that's what God does to the people that he approves of and favors. And that's a damnable heresy as far as verse 25 is concerned. That's not how this goes. So we read about our rich man, and he is indeed privileged. He's clothed in fine purple linen, purple being the color of royalty. Actually, in some places in the Roman Empire, it was illegal for a commoner to wear purple because it signified royalty. And he eats sumptuous meals like your Thanksgiving feast, not once a year, but day after day after day. And he doesn't even take that massive pile of leftovers that you probably still have in your fridge right now and offer it to the poor man laying outside of his front door. Instead, he just throws it away because to him it's nothing. He's a man so pompous, think about this, that even in death from hell, he thinks that he can command other men to do his bidding. As he says to Abraham, send Lazarus down here with a, a drop of cold water to cool my tongue. Like Lazarus is some kind of servant even in death. So here's a man, the rich man. He lives in luxury. He's even got his house surrounded so that he doesn't, the, the text doesn't tell us about his front door. It tells us about his gate. 
right? Where he can keep the world out and he can keep his luxuries in. And he knows Abraham. He calls to Abraham by name. He calls him father. So that tells us that he's a religious man of sorts. He at least knows his religious basics. But he doesn't seem to practice them, even though he knows Abraham by name. And whatever he may know in his head, in reality, in his heart, the things that he does prove that he doesn't actually share the heart of God at all. And this becomes abundantly clear when we begin to look at the poor man Lazarus in more detail. Because we know that Lazarus is not merely a poor man in poverty because he is unwilling to work. He's not lazy. He hasn't chose to be a beggar instead of go out and get a job. Verse 20 tells us that Lazarus was laid at the gate of this rich man, passive. In other words, Lazarus is a crippled man of some sort. He's not a bum without a work ethic. He is incapable of providing for himself. So his very existence is dependent upon the kindness of others to provide for his basic daily needs. He's dependent upon the generosity of those who have some kind of surplus, which then makes sense why he would be laid at the gate of this rich man who clearly has more than enough. In this place, this poor man, Lazarus, believes he might actually occasionally get access to some of those scraps that the rich man discards as if it's no big deal. Not good enough for the rich man, but certainly a feast for the beggar. Now, one of the most fascinating or shocking things about this parable, maybe you picked up on this, is that in this parable, the poor man has a name and the rich man does not. In fact, this is the only parable that Jesus tells where any character gets a name. And it doesn't go to the character that you would expect, the rich man. It goes to the poor man. So when in history has anyone ever recorded for us the name of a poor man so that it might endure while the rich is neglected? Can you imagine reading a story, let's say, in the newspaper, where Elon Musk bumps into some bum on the streets of San Francisco, but the story doesn't mention Elon Musk's name. Instead, the story records for us the name of the bum. Can you imagine? Like, if you were reading that story, and it was actually an interesting story, let's say, uh, wouldn't you want to know that the story was telling you about Elon Musk, the rich man? And wouldn't you care nothing about the bum Mike who lives under the awning down on 4th Street? Right? The details are totally backwards. Because, of course, we ascribe importance and prestige to someone like Elon Musk, the richest man in the world, and we couldn't care less about some crippled beggar who lives under the awning of the local drugstore. But you know what else is amazing is if we look at verse 24, we realize that actually the rich man knows Lazarus's name. He recognizes him, which means he knew this man who was laid outside of his gate. He knew about his need, but he chose to do nothing to help him at all. 
He knows him by name. So selfish and so cold is this rich man that even seeing this man in need laying right outside of his own front door, he did nothing. 1 John chapter 3, verse 17 warns us about living like this. It says, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? We might make an excuse for the rich man if he just was unaware of Lazarus' need, but what we find in him using Lazarus' name is that he was fully aware of the need, but he had closed his heart to the need. And so how does God's love abide in this man? And we know, too, that Jesus gave us two primary commands for how we would live our lives as his followers, right? First, the first and greatest commandment is that we should love God with all of our heart. And the second great command, Jesus said, is like it, that you should love your neighbor. Well, these two men, Lazarus and the rich man, are quite literally neighbors. The rich man is living in his house behind his gate, and Lazarus, the poor man, is right next door, right outside of the gate. But the rich man cared nothing for his neighbor Lazarus. Knowing his name, seeing his need, he callously walked past this man, maybe daily, to get into his own home to continue his feasting and his luxurious, comfortable life. Now, before we go any further in the parable, I want to just point something out to any of you who might be a skeptic and you're listening this morning. Maybe for some reason you're listening, but you don't yet believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. See, the Pharisees, if if we zoom out for a second, where is Jesus? He's teaching this parable in front of a crowd and the Pharisees are present. And the Pharisees have been watching Jesus closely and you know what they think about Jesus? They think he's a joke. In this worldview they have, where the rich are blessed, they are rich because God favors them and loves them more, and the powerful have the favor of God upon them, what the Pharisees see in Jesus is a man who can't possibly be approved in the eyes of God. The Pharisees themselves are blessed, they are special, they have riches and wealth and comfort and power. While Jesus is basically a poor, uneducated, homeless guy from the backwoods of Israel. So here's a point that you need to wrestle with if you're a skeptic. How is it that the poor man Jesus is the single most recognized name in all of human history, while countless numbers of rich and powerful and important people have faded into obscurity and their names are lost to history forever. How is that possible? Don't you see? Just like it is absurd that this parable would record for us the name of the poor guy and ignore the name of the rich guy, it is absurd that after 2,000 years from telling this story, that here in this room are more than 100 people talking about Jesus of all people. The poor homeless dude from the backwater town of Nazareth in Israel. 
And so is it possible, I would present to you the skeptic this question, is it possible that the reason why the name of Jesus has been remembered more than any other name in all of human history is because this man actually rose from the dead and is indeed the Son of God and proved himself to be not merely a poor man from Israel, but the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Is that possible? Because someone explained to me how a poor man like Jesus has made such a name for himself on every continent of this earth, in every culture, shaping the world more than any other single figure in all of human history, if he was nothing more than a bum and a poor guy and an uneducated guy from the countryside. We're going to come back to the rising from the dead thing in a few minutes. Let me just summarize the rich man in our parable. He's self-obsessed. He has no concern for others. While Lazarus is painfully dependent upon others, most of all, he is dependent upon God for his daily needs, certainly because the rich man who he has placed himself nearby has no regard for him whatsoever. And the parable continues in verses 22 through 23 by telling us that eventually both men died. No surprise there. Uh, You know how things end, right? You do know how your story concludes. It concludes with this truth that you will die. It's not something we want to think about often. But the truth is, death is inevitable for every single one of us. And so we should consider what happens after we die because actually death is not the end. It is a transition into a new kind of beginning. And clearly the rich man, one of his flaws was that he gave no thought to anything beyond his comfort and his riches. And so he is surprised then to find himself after death in this place of torment and suffering called Hades or hell. And there's a lot that I could say about verses 22 through 26. I'm not really going to get into a deep theology of hell in this sermon. If it's something you're curious about, feel free to let me know after the service, and I would love to share those thoughts with you. The point that I want to dwell on concerning these verses for a moment is this. What you are becoming in this life is what you will be forever in eternity. Think about that. What you are becoming in this life is what you will be fixed forever in eternity. See, many people wrongly believe that I can live my life one way now, and then, you know, when I die, everything will change and magically I'll be transformed into something else. It doesn't really matter what I do in life because once I die, it'll all be straightened out in eternity. Now, it is true that through faith in Christ on the last day, those who have faith in Jesus will be finally and fully transformed to be like him in perfection. True. And at that point, we will cast off all the remaining sin that still unfortunately clings to us in this life. But I want you to see just a few small details in this parable. Notice that when Lazarus dies in verse 22, how does he get to Abraham's side? He is carried, the text tells us. In other words, this man who was codependent in life remains codependent in death. 
On the other hand, the rich man who only ever thought of himself in life, now you might think he is in eternity. He will begin to think about something other than himself. But look, he continues to think only of his own suffering and anguish. Even in the moment where he can think beyond his suffering to think of somebody else, who does he think about? Only his immediate family. And verse 26 tells us that in this place post-death, there is a great chasm that is fixed. And so here's what I'm getting at. Right now in this life, your heart is like wet clay. It can be shaped. It can be molded. And every day, through your choices, you are shaping and molding your heart into something. Either something beautiful that pleases God and reflects his beauty, or something ugly that God disproves of. And one day you're going to die, and dying will be like taking that wet clay and placing it into the kiln where it will be fired and fixed and forever made hard. And on that day, whatever you've shaped your heart into will then be fixed for all eternity. Either something that God approves of and loves for all eternity, or something that God disproves of and which he hates for all eternity. And friends, please hear me then on this point. Your daily decisions are in fact making you into something. You are becoming something. Every day you're shaping your heart by the things that you see, the things that you hear, the things that you desire, the things that you pursue, the things that you think about and love and set your heart and affections on, the things that you do. And if you believe that you can make decisions in this life that are contrary to what pleases God, but still wake up one day in the life to come to live forever in God's kingdom, then I want you to understand you are deceived. That is not how it works. Every day as you choose to love what this world loves or love what God loves, you are becoming either more a child of hell or more a child of heaven. And yes, of course, we are saved by God's grace through the work of Jesus Christ. I'm not telling you you have the power to save yourself by your actions. But being saved by grace means that we become transformed and we are made more in his image. We are becoming like Jesus. And if the trajectory of your life now, the decisions that you are making, the way that you are shaping and molding that clay is leading you in the opposite direction of Jesus Christ, then it is ultimately moving you towards the torment of hell and Hades. And each day you are choosing your eternal fitness. You are choosing either to be ready to meet the king and live with him forever, or you are choosing to be apart from Christ because you think only about your own desires and your own selfish interests and never what pleases God. And I think this is the shocking realization that the rich man has there in verses 27 to 31. 
that what he was in life is now fixed forever in eternity, he begins to realize, my situation is now hopeless. It cannot be changed. But he realizes that maybe there is still hope for his brothers who are living. And he thinks that maybe if they just could get access to this information that for some reason he didn't uh, understand or didn't accept, if they could just hear this, then they might understand their decisions are shaping their soul for eternity. And maybe then they would make different choices to live in light of eternity and not only for their own comfort. And so the rich man longs for someone to warn them that all the stories about judgment, all the stories about what God will do after death to put us through a process of evaluation, he realizes that's true. And maybe if my brothers heard this news, it would change the way they live And they would think more about eternity and less about pleasure. Now, we read to the end of the parable, you know, his brothers don't get that warning. But you are getting that warning right now. I didn't come back from the dead to tell you this. But I am telling you what the text says. I am warning you right now. Don't squander your life like this rich man, thinking only about comfort and pleasure and what feels good. And you need to understand that although you may not think of yourself as rich, I mean, you live in Maricopa after all, compared to the vast majority of the rest of the people on planet earth, do you know who you are in this story? You are the rich man. If you have a home with air conditioning and a car, you are living far more comfortably than the vast majority of people have ever lived in all of human history. You are wealthier beyond the wildest dreams of most people on planet earth right now. And so don't think that you're not under the same kind of temptation that this rich man is under. You may hear this story and think, well, this isn't really my problem because like, I don't have a homeless dude living outside of my front door and I'm not really rich. Actually, in fact, you are. And you are in danger of the same error that this rich man makes, thinking only of his own comfort and luxuries and wealth, pleasure and materialism. These are the dangers that you and I face on a daily basis that distract us from thinking about eternal things. That there really is a judgment. And one day after we die, we will stand before God to give an account of ourselves. And there's a great chasm fixed between hell and between heaven. And there's no way to cross it once that judgment has been rendered by God. And so let me say it again. As I've had to say in a number of these parables, as we have made our way through them, what I am teaching you has nothing to do with works righteousness. This is not about earning your salvation or earning God's approval. This has to do with what is dear to the heart of God. And see, in our parable, the rich man had a cold and calloused heart. He thought nothing of the poor man at his doorstep. But far above this rich man in wealth and prestige with treasure untold is God. And he has looked down on you 
the spiritually poor, sitting outside the gate of his kingdom, lame and crippled in your sin, and he has had compassion on you. He has considered you. He has shared all good things with you. See, you are in danger of being like the rich man, thinking only of comfort and luxury, but the truth is you are also Lazarus in your spiritual poverty. And this is the gospel of grace. That you, though you have been covered in the sores of your own sin and laid in the misery of self-ruin in the gutter of sin because of your spiritual poverty, God has actually taken you out of that spiritual poverty and offered you a place at his table, feasting sumptuously every day on the treasures of his love. That is the gospel of grace now offered to you. And you can only come to this table by grace. You cannot earn it. You cannot kick down the gate. You cannot demand a seat there. You must accept it as a gift. And in doing so, then you enter into the kingdom of God by grace. But friends... How could you receive an invitation like that to come out of your poverty and your misery and to sit at the table of the rich man and feast on all of his goodness and not become the kind of person whose heart has been forever changed by that act of kindness? Imagine for a second that Lazarus had been invited into the feast of the rich man after laying in poverty outside of his gate. And he ate the food and became full and suddenly forgot about his past misery. And he went out then and was cold and calloused and cruel to others. What kind of a shame that story would be, that his heart would grow cold to others after what he had been through. Or imagine Lazarus feasting at the table of the rich man And then afterwards, insulting the rich man by saying, why didn't he do more for me? Why have you not given me even greater things? This feast that you put before me doesn't mean anything to me. And so don't you see, your own good works could never lift you out of the misery of your spiritual poverty and sin. But if you've received this grace, how could you ever from that point forward be an ungracious or uncaring person? How could you not be transformed by this kindness? And so what I mean is that the rich man is not in hell simply because he was rich. And the poor man is not in heaven simply because he was poor. The rich man is in hell because he cared nothing for the things of God, proving that he didn't have the heart of God. And the poor man ends up in heaven because with nothing else to place his hope in, he places it in God. In fact, his name Lazarus means God the helper. Now, the final thing I want to say concerning this parable is this. There will be no further revelation from God concerning these things. If you're waiting for some kind of sign before you trust Jesus and begin to follow him, you will get none. There will be no further revelation communication from God concerning the things of judgment and salvation. See, the rich man thinks that if someone were to cross over from death into life and then go to his brothers, 
then they would be so shocked by this resurrection or this ghost or whatever it is, and they would have to believe that judgment is coming and they should live accordingly. Surely then they would believe and they would repent of their pleasure-seeking and think about the things of God. But in our parable, Abraham tells them, if they don't hear Abraham or the prophets, or Moses or the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And friends, this is true. The point here is that the scriptures already contain for us everything that we need to know in order to come out of sin and be redeemed and saved, to be made right with God. And the Old Testament foretold that God would send a Savior, a Messiah, and that Savior, Jesus, came and he taught about the kingdom of God. He said, the doors are wide open for anyone and everyone who would come to me, come and enter into the feast of the King. And in response to that message, humanity murdered Jesus. We nailed him to a cross in spite, just to get him to shut up, to quit talking about it. And fortunately, that's not where it ended because the truth is he rose from the dead on the third day so that it might be absolutely clear and undeniable that there is eternal life and that God has made a way for us to be saved and to enter into his kingdom. And yet somehow, somehow people still don't believe. Isn't it amazing? What other message could you be waiting for than the resurrection from the dead? And if you won't believe the scriptures, and you won't believe even if someone were to rise from the dead, what would you believe? What more could possibly be done for you? Now, someone might respond and say to me, well, Grady, I don't believe Jesus rose from the dead because obviously people don't rise from the dead. Yes, that's the whole point. Don't you see? That's why it is so incredible that Jesus claimed to rise from the dead. Not even any other religion that attempts to tell you what God is like or what eternity is like will make this claim because it is so absurd. It is crazy. And so I would say again to any of you in this room who might be a skeptic that if indeed there is a credible claim that a man rose from the dead, you better do nothing else until you get to the bottom of that claim. You better think long and hard. You better do your work. You better investigate because people do not rise from the dead. And so if in fact someone rose from the dead, that changes everything. And you better consider that very carefully. Truly, you should not sleep again until you have investigated all of the evidence in favor and all of the evidence against and you have made your own determination. Because if you refuse to believe, what more could possibly be done for you? God has done everything to woo you and to save you and to love you and to prove himself to you. What more could be done? The truth is, for many people, it's not that they can't believe. It's that they don't want to believe. 
The fact of the matter is, even if Lazarus could rise from the dead and go back to the brothers of this rich man and say, you better think more about judgment because it is coming for you and you will die and you will be made to give an account of your life and your comfort and your riches and your power will mean nothing on that day. How do you think they would have responded? But I like my comfort today and I like my riches and I like my power. They would want to go on feasting and enjoying their pleasures. But if Jesus really rose from the dead, then none of that matters anymore. But people don't want to believe because they don't want to give it up. And I pray that that doesn't describe anyone listening to this sermon today. I pray for you that you have considered what the scriptures say and you've considered the fact that Jesus rose from the dead And you have believed. And I pray that as a result of that trust, that belief, that your life is changed. That the pleasures of this world no longer capture your heart. Because your heart is already full with the truth of Christ. That you treasure him. Well, one of my favorite things about this parable is that We can replace the rich man who failed with Jesus who succeeded, and it becomes a really hopeful story if we think about it. Jesus, who is truly the rich man, the richest of all men, sees his neighbor Lazarus in need, sitting outside of the gate, and obviously we are Lazarus, in our miserable condition, undignified with our bleeding sores from sin and brokenness, crippled and incapable of self-sufficiency. And Jesus gladly trades places with the poor man, seating the poor man at the best seat of the table, filling him with rich foods, providing an enduring home for him to live in, no longer in the gutter, clothing us in our spiritual poverty with the riches of his kingdom, And see, what really motivates us as Christians towards godliness, towards love, it's not a sense of obligation or duty or merit. It's what you hold in your hands right now. It is the sacrificial body and blood of Jesus Christ represented by the bread and the juice. And this is what presses us and encourages us and inspires us to love God and to love others. It is because we have been loved, proven by the body and blood of Christ. There's been no greater expression of love than this. In 2 Corinthians, Paul puts it like this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Isn't that one of the most beautiful expressions of the gospel? And so what you hold in your hands is a symbol of all the riches of God, which comes to you through the flesh and blood of Christ. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, And said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, we thank you for this parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And we thank you that in a way it helps us see our condition before you. We are this poor man, Lazarus, spiritually needy, ruined by sin, incapable of self-sufficiency, living in the gutter of our own rebellion just outside of the gate of your beautiful kingdom. And we thank you that you are a God who is not indifferent to us, but who in grace opened that gate and embraced us and even laid down your own life that we might be seated at your table. We thank you for the body and blood of Jesus that has redeemed us. And I pray that our hearts would respond to this grace with great love for you, a deep affection for what matters in your eyes, and a love, too, for others that they might share in the grace that we have received. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.